everyone. Uh, I started the room a little bit earlier, uh, like, and we'll really start in nine minutes, just to let you know, uh, because Carl, um, Dr. Carl Ernst, he, um, just to give him time, because he's new on Clubhouse and so on. So I started the room a little bit earlier. Welcome, everyone. Hi everyone, welcome. Uh, Dr. Carl Ernst uh, is joining us in a couple of minutes and we'll start the room in a little bit more than five minutes. Uh, I opened the room a little bit earlier since Dr. Ernst is new to Clubhouse to give him some time to join the room and, um, and things like that. So uh, thanks for being here and Oh, he, I don't, so I don't see you in the room, Carl, um, Carl, uh, if you could rejoin the room, like, um, log out and come back in again, um, sometimes that helps. Ah, there you are. Perfect. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Uh, can you, I guess you can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, this is definitely my first time using this. Yeah, so welcome to Clubhouse and having right away like your own um, room the first time you were on Clubhouse. <laughs> That's so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So how did, so you can hear me. I can hear you. Um, what is, oh, I see. Yeah, let, okay. let me I go read. over like a few basics maybe of the sure. app. So you already found the mute unmute button, which is all the way on the bottom. Hi, Jamie. 
um, on the right hand, the microphone button, then there is usually the hand raising option, but you're already a speaker. So it's to the to the left of the microphone button, you see there like a clipboard. So you're a speaker, so you don't need to raise your hand, but usually if you would be in the audience and uh, you would need to raise your hand for us to bring you up here. Okay. And um, on above the microphone button is a messaging option. It's like a paper airplane. And uh, yeah, I'll give you a message really quick. So if you have like trouble hearing us or we cannot hear you or something, we can message. And then all the way to the left, um, there's like another like um, chat option. If you click on it, you're in the room chat. So I'll write. So if you want, like some people would prefer to ask questions there or comment there instead of actually talking. Yeah. Uh, so that's where you can, people can communicate with the whole room. Okay. So that's, th those are the most important things for now. If you so want there, to, yeah, so go is ahead. There, is there a screen display like in Zoom or is this all um, verbal? Yeah, so uh, we, if you look above our icons, there is a link posted to your paper. So. Ah, okay on it you can choose go to link and then people can scroll through the paper while you're talking okay so, um we can do the same with the presentation if you have a presentation we can do us the same with that uh, if you would prefer that so so there's no share screen option where i see you or you see me and you look at um you look no at okay so yeah, if as a yeah, if you prefer presentation, uh, either uh, you can upload it. I don't know if you have Google Drive, to Google Drive the presentation, um, and then make the presentation accessible to everyone to view with a link. I don't and, have Google Drive, so I won't uh, okay. be able to do that. But um... well, you can just send it to me. Like we have to turn this into a URL. Like you can only post links or you can send it to me really quick and I'll do it uh, while we You guys prefer this over Zoom, eh? <laughs> there, this is like um, a little bit different. Like a Zoom, you have to have everyone's email and right. like, so this is like a public social media uh, space for uh, everyone that would is interested in listening to this or interacting with you would be available for that. Mostly our club members will get notifications that this room is going on. So right. mostly our members, but in general, everyone here on Clubhouse and or that is following us on Twitter and so on can just join in. So gotcha. um, it's a it's a different way. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't have, you know, the emails of everyone <laughs> that gotcha. could possibly join us. So. Sure. Okay. I think I, I think I understand. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for trying this out. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy to, happy to do it. Thanks for writing to me. Hello, doctor. Thank you so much for coming. I'm, I'm ah, yes. Thanks. Nice to be here. Um,
I was reading somewhere, I've, wrote, I've written down some questions I've got when I was looking through your paper. And uh, so, just warning, I'm just a very enthusiastic am amateur here. So, sure. please forgive me if any of the questions sound overly... No, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but the, the thing, some of the stuff I was writing, some questions, uh, maybe some of them will be explained in your presentation. And maybe I'll have to pick your brain a little bit more, but I'm very excited with what you were writing about. Thank okay. you so much for coming. Yeah, that's great. So that's an idea. Yeah, I think we, this is a different format for me too. So I'll have to adjust. I have, you know, PowerPoint slides and so on. So I don't think that's going to work. So we can make this very uh, open. Um, yeah. If you want to really quick, send me an email with them. I, it takes me really just a minute, but I understand if you're not comfortable also sharing more, this uh, with a random person. It's fine. I can use the, um, I'll use the, 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 images in drive uh, that you have here uh, okay so yeah from the paper yeah that that's fine yeah okay. yeah perfect and then okay. uh, do I it? Maybe. yeah well this we'll see how it goes but i think um okay there we go okay so where are you at the moment doctor are you getting an early start to the day or is it your afternoon somewhere yeah we it's 11 30 in the morning here i'm in montreal uh, but very randomly, we had a crazy snowstorm this morning. So for anyone in the U.S., it must have hit New York or uh, maybe Boston. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very weird, even for us. Uh, that's a bit wild. Hello, Dr. Ernst. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Very good, thanks. Nice to uh, hear from you. So we, yeah, we can just make this very, in oh, there you are. Okay, good. We can make this very interactive. That's, that's fine. I can basically just sort of um, discuss our work in the group. Um, we can look okay. at some of the images in the paper and I can also just tell you kind of what we're working on now. Anytime these papers come out, of course, they, you know, they were completed, you know, a year ago and we, we were working on other things. So, um, maybe I'll start with that and people should feel free to jump in and ask kind of what we're up to or, you know, why we did what we did or yep. the problems we see what have you, this seems like a, a reasonable way to do it. And then, you know, if I blabber on too long, Katarina, you can just cut it or you can feel free to moderate because I talk to my students, they say I ramble a lot. So I'll give you the heads up on so that now. Th th there's no too long here in our club. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> like we probably sometimes <laughs> ask too much time from Oops. our speakers. <laughs> like we try not to. So <laughs> yeah, let me just introduce you really quick to uh, the audience. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored to have today Dr. Carl Ernst here. He's an associate professor at, at the, and the Canada Research Chair in Psychiatric Genetics at the McGill University and, and the Department of Psychiatry Human Genetics um, and the Integrated Program in Neuroscience. He is also the winner of the 2017 Teaching Award. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and also additionally, uh, outside of neuroscience and genetics, he's also a singer, songwriter in, of original children's songs. And um, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I write uh, children's books with my daughter, so <laughs> that's wonderful. And um, yeah, so uh, welcome to, um, and we are so glad that you made this, you know, your time available for us. 
And if it's okay, uh, Jamie would maybe ask you like a general question for you as a scientist in general. Is that okay? So the audience gets to know like the path of, of sure. becoming a scientist a little bit. Yeah. So I would say by, for, uh, for this format, I'd say feel free to fire away about anything, uh, anything you want to ask. That's absolutely no problem. Thank you so much because I have a dozen questions here because especially with you saying um, that you were a singer-songwriter as well, it's making me think um, when we have a guest here they often have very interesting stories about what got them here in the first place and <laughs> straight away with that description there is a story there. So <laughs> were you always looking towards genetics or were you thinking songwriter first or how did this come about? How did you end up here? Yeah, so it was not a uh, it was not a direct line, and I see students these days who have everything very well planned and mapped, and I definitely was not that. I um I actually come at this area from uh, uh, working with kids with disabilities. That's that's why I'm here, um, and I uh, I'm from Victoria, BC, on the west coast of Canada, and I you know worked a lot with kids at summer camps and stuff after high school. Um, I, uh, I didn't want to go to school just to, just to tell you. So it's even more, my parents sort of laugh when they see where I am now. Um, I had no, I was going to, you know, live on a sort of Island farm and, uh, work with kids, like kind of social work type stuff. Uh, and then as I was doing that, as we got the YMCA, I got, how did I, I got invited, I don't know, some, somebody said there was a position open at the school board. It's, you know, the school board of the, of, of, of in Victoria. And anyway, they ended up hiring me, and I ended up, so it was quite formal. So I, I started working one-on-one. -on -one. We have an integration program out in BC, which means that kids with you know serious disabilities, they're not put in their separate school. They are put in uh, in a normal classroom, and they have a one-on-one -on -one aid with them the whole time. So we call it special student assistance. So that's what I did you know, for a part of that year. And then every uh, – I did that for four or five years, um, just working with different kids with – so that's sort of how I got into this area where I was working with kids with Angelman syndrome, probably a Fox G1 case, you know, severe kids with really severe disabilities. And we'd sit in the back of the classroom and we, we weren't doing what the other kids were doing. We were doing our own thing. And if there was a seizure or something, we'd go on the hallway. It was like, it was a very, very nice uh, program. So based on that, I applied to university to do neuroscience. Uh, in Canada, the place to come for that uh, is, is McGill. So I came in here and even my, I was looking at my first year essay, this would be 1998. And it talks about all these kids and wanting to do this. So it's just, it's fun for me to look back that once I had kind of been grabbed by the passion, which was what is going on in the brains of these kids? How is this happening? So that's sort of the genetics and neuroscience link was, was just the exposure to working with them. And then doing undergrad to um, to try and learn about. I didn't do science in high school. I didn't do chemistry. I didn't do physics. I did do biology. So I was just I was really not. And then I was like, okay, I guess this is what I have to do to to do this. And then after undergrad, I was um, I really liked what I did, but I realized I was quite far behind everybody else. You know, they'd volunteered in first year and second year, and they had ten years, whatever, tons of lab experience, and I, you know, I was just very behind. Um, so I did a master's degree in Vancouver just to be like. Can, you know, can I do this? Can I do research? And what's it like? Sort of dip the toe in the water. And I really liked it. So that was sort of the moment where I was like, okay. And then I ended up coming back to McGill because of uh, a girl. I uh, had not intended to come here for PhD, but she ended up coming here. And now my now wife, uh, so the sort of rest is history. And I just settled in here basically after, after that. So that's my, that's my very circuitous background to arriving here. 
that is incredible. And can I just say, because um, I personally, I uh, was actually in a disabled school. Uh, Jamie, your volume was a little low. Oh, sorry. Am I too quiet? Yes, uh, much better. Any better? Okay, thanks. Um, I personally, um, I was actually in a disabled school because I'm blind and there was many, many children alongside me with many different disabilities. And so we had the, the kind of care that that you're talking about. So I, as a, on a personal note, thank you very, very much for being one of the people that cared, you know, because that really did make a difference to myself and other people's lives. And one more question before we get into your presentation. Um, the music, the songwriting, I have to ask, what yep. made that happen? What did so you do I was always, uh, you know, writing music as a kid and stuff. And I think part of the reason I took a year off after high school was to really do that, you know, writing and playing and really composition was my focus. And it was, you know, guitar based, but I didn't really care what instrument I was playing. I like to sing and, and create. Um, so I, yeah, I was sort of toying with, is this going to be, you know, that, that year I was like, is this something I could do as a career? What's the, you know, what are my options here? Can I do it on the side? So I was, so I just, I, I've always done it. Um, and uh, it ended up, I ended up doing science and doing, you know, music on the side, but I continued to write them and write music, you know, frequently. And then when the kids came along, I guess seven or eight years ago now, I uh, sort of channeled my, <laughs> whatever, passions into, into kids' music and uh, just really uh, loved it. And, you know, it's even now I'm still singing the kids to sleep with their own little songs. And uh, so I just, I keep that up. Uh, some, not, not formally, but, you know, we, we play little shows in Montreal and I'm, you know, my friend has a studio and I'll we'll record. So it's, it's amateur, but, you know, I'm, I'm serious about it and, uh, you know, play live and so on. So that it's, it, it's just always been a passion to create music. It is now being channeled into children's music because I have young children, basically. That is fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, okay, Katarina, over to you. Oh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, thank you for giving us such a cool insight. Uh, I have a very similar story about uh, going to school, and I never wanted to go to university, but ended up going. But uh, it's very funny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, please go ahead and um, uh, talk about your, your work. It's so interesting. So, thanks. Yeah, okay, I'm happy to do that. So again, I'll just agree, just because of this, the, the type of formal that Clubhouse is, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for me not to just speak in the in the dark. I will start with, a, you know, on the trajectory, but I, I would say, you know, jump in or ask what we're up to. That will probably make uh, best use of this particular format and um, and uh, we'll take it, take it from there. Okay, so my lab, um, uh, we study neurodevelopmental diseases and um, the right now there's maybe uh maybe about 10 people and students tend to have their own particular monogenetic disorder we're studying so i'm very conservative when it comes to working in stem cell modeling of disease so presumably familiar to most of you is this you know the idea that we can take you know uh, somatic cells from people turn them into stem cells this is this nobel prize from 2012 of course right uh, the, the 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 idea of inducing um, somatic cells to become stem cells um, from an adult tissue. So we do that and we use, uh, we use, I think for this paper, we, we probably use urine, but we'll use urine, blood, skin, and there's different reasons why we take uh, different tissues. Um, 
obviously urine is the least invasive. So a lot of, lots of parents like it, but it's the hardest to handle. Um, so and then the skin is the most invasive, but it's easiest to handle and blood. We tend to, we do blood a lot. Now we're, we, we have a large grant to just recruit kids with autism in Montreal and we're just making stem cells like a, like constantly. Um, so this project was done by a student in my lab who's about to graduate named Nuon. So he's the first author in the study that's uh, posted here on Google Drive. Um, and a little girl came in with her dad. Uh, I don't know how they find out, but probably just Googling who's doing what in Montreal. So we don't recruit patients or we had, did not initially pick disease. They really come to us. And our, our, the cases that work with us are very much collaborators in these projects. So they're writing to me and they're asking about what we're up to and what their cell, their kids' cells look like. And they'll send me the MRI of their daughters. And it's a very nice relationship with uh, the families that we have across a few different disorders. So we're studying four or five, I guess we're saying it. FOXG1 syndrome is one of the disorders that my lab, uh, my lab studies. But I've tried to set it up in such a way that the students and technicians are working uh, you know, operationally, it's very similar. So they're doing knockouts and they're doing repairs. So this is this CRISPR-Cas9 um, genetic engineering to, to alter the genome to either repair a mutation or induce a knockout. And our strategy for any disease, and of course that's the case for FOXG1, is to, we're always very scared of making Franken cells as we call them. So, you know, it's, I always say, you could go to your basement and make some of these, uh, either genetic engineer something into a cell or, um, or make a stem cell. It's just very difficult to do it cleanly and properly. That to me is really the distinguishing feature across even, you know, professional labs or academic labs. So, you know, you can get a few viruses that express these core, core genes, these Yamanaka factors, as we call them, and it will kind of turn it into a stem cell, but it might not too. It will turn it into like a big tumor that's, you know, expanding and it's stem-like and it's just this gross looking mesodermal cell. So, because of that, we're very uh, fixated, I would say, on making sure those stem cells are made properly and that we make sure the neurons we make from those stem cells or the, the genome that we alter is done uh, ideally clonally, but very carefully. So there's really a, a very large system of checks and balances to make sure that the cells are high, uh, high quality. Um, so my idea with this is not a new idea, but when you have such small sample numbers as we do with rare diseases, so we're really in the rare disease space, right? With the, with the disorder like Fox G1 syndrome, um, the only way to protect yourself against not just technical error, but errors you can't tell are there. You know, for example, the cells are, uh, they have a, uh, you know, a, a single base mutation that you have made. It's been selected for because it grows well and cleanly in a stem cell state, just to give you an example. But you'll never detect it unless you hold genome sequence or stem cells and look for it. And I don't know anybody that's doing that across passages. The only way to protect yourself against problems like that are to have multiple cell lines across different people to genetically engineer something that mimics the disorder. So in the case of FOXG1, it's a loss of, um, it's a loss of dosage problem. Um, so one, one allele of the gene is mutated in some way and uh, it leads to what I'm getting, assuming most of us know what the phenotype looks like, but I will describe it. Um, that's how we protect ourselves against this kind of problem. In some other conditions, we'll even use pharmacology, something that might mimic uh, the disease situation. So for example, if it's an enzyme, we might have a drug that might block that enzyme and we will try and use that to mimic disease. Um, and see if we can also identify the cell phenotype. So we're always looking for some cell phenotype that truly associates with 
the mutation. So I don't think of us as a disease in a dish lab. I think of us as a functional genetics lab. And I, I say that because I want to be conservative about our interpretation, which is when there's mutations in gene X, what effect does that have on the cell? That's independent from you know cell line artifacts or differentiation problems or uh, operator error. So I kind of operate on the assumption that all kinds of there's a lot of variation, I guess is really what I'm trying to say, in, in cell lines. And this is definitely what I see across other labs. So we're, we're constantly on a hunt to, to, to cope with that. And hopefully from our paper, you can see what the kind of things we do to deal with that. So Fox-G1 syndrome is a very severe neurodevelopmental disorder where you know the it's characterized by this, this microcephaly. So the brain clearly has not grown large enough. Uh, severe seizures. Um, uh, there's a, I mean, the girl that was in my lab was nonverbal, and this stood out to me when she came in. So she comes in to give us a urine sample, and we always collect a uh, same-sex family member, first degree, so mom, sister, and um, uh, that, that's, again, just to, to limit the variation we have in, 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 in matching these N of 1 or N of 2 samples to, to, their, own, um, to their own genome. Well, at least they share 50% of the genome. So she came in to, to give a urine sample, and of course, for people with disabilities to give urine samples, it's not, especially if there's motor problems, so it's not a trivial thing to do. So in the case of, 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 of girls, we have to, you know, we have a little bag that tapes around the labia and you're kind of waiting for this person to pee. You cannot necessarily pee on demand. So they were there for quite a few hours. But I, what stood out to me was that she did not recognize her parents' voice. So a lot of kids, even when they're, you know, severely disabled, you know, intellectually disabled, knowing your mom, recognizing your mom or recognizing the voice is, is not something I've experienced uh, before, you know, for collection. It's, you know, and many, many of the children, of course, are moderately uh, disabled. For example, Kabuki syndrome, you know, there it's a, you definitely have an intellectual disability, but nowhere near the level of Fox G1. So that really stood out to my own mind of just how severe this, uh, this disease was. And uh, of course, there, there, there's all kinds of gait issues, all related to the, the neurological problem. So Fox G1 is, 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 from everything I've read, is exclusively brain expressed. And it seems to be very important um, in the initial stages of development that allow um, the neural stem cells to, to proliferate and expand, which of course has to happen before you know, the cortex, this sort of layer on top of the brain, is able to to form and then looking at other people's papers and the most knockouts it also seems to have a role in post-mitotic post cells so cells that have neurons that have finished differentiating it seems to also have a role later on too so it, it certainly looked to us when we we're starting this that this is potentially a multifunctional uh, protein that's clearly involved in some expansion of the neural progenitor cell pool and also potentially involved in uh, either migration of 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 differentiated brain cells you know where should they go in these cortical layers for example should it be layer one layer two layer three and then how does it connect so it was a fascinating gene to us because of its uh, power so when i say power i mean it's very upstream it turns on other very important transcription factors um, and its loss at least from the most knockout studies uh, you know you're having a tiny brain and, and, and it's basically not not viable mice. I think they could live for an hour or two. And these first knockout studies were done in, in 95, I think. So this gene has been known for a long time. Um, any uh, questions on that? Because I can, I can ramble on for a long time. Okay. Uh, you can also type into the um, text and I can hopefully see that or Katarina might see it. And we can, uh... 
yeah, for now, uh, I think, yeah, I didn't see any questions, but yeah, please, everyone ask questions. Um, oh. type questions. Yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I ask one then, please? Yeah. Um, I, I noticed what, when you were you were talking about the mutations and, and things, um, sorry if I don't remember the exact wording you used a minute ago, um, but that was part of the, the question. Um, when you said in your paper what you're missing is a comprehensive, robust investigation of the role of FOX um, G1 mutations that causes microcephaly, um, is this what you were referring to when you just spoke a minute ago, the fact that it's um, mutating in a lot more ways and a lot, you know, different effects that currently isn't being expanded on to the extent that it hopefully will be in the future? Right. So the um, I'm not certain that the different mutation types uh, leads to such a different phenotype. So I know the, the International Fox G1, so these, these wonderful family-based foundations are, uh, you know, get together and get organized and they all seem to follow somewhat similar trajectory. So uh, I know there's natural history studies being done where they're collect, they're trying to get a hundred, 200 cases, and they're trying to get all the clinical data from, for example, kids with Fox G1 mutations who are diagnosed and, you know, genetically identified, um, to figure out what is their phenotype exactly. So, you know, my take on, I don't think that different loss of different ways to lose function from the, you know, one copy of this gene leads to such different uh, phenotypes. If you're missing, if you've got a frame shift mutation that causes a stop, like your phenotype is going to be uh, probably similar to somebody else's who also has loss of function of one allele in a completely different area of the gene. So we take advantage of that by, by saying any way you can lose dosage, so you lose one copy of the of Fox G1, should be reasonably similar to what we might expect from the disease. And from a cellular standpoint, we expect the cell phenotypes to overlap significantly, whether I make it in my own cells, you know, we have control cells, or I, I'm using it in a, I'm looking at it in a patient who has a particular mutation that is known to cause um, disease. So that the spectrum of mutations, um, I think there's a little too much weight in, across genetics put on genotype-phenotype relationships. I, I, by and large, of course, they can happen. There's no question that you know it, it could occur. But for for loss of function mutations, um, I think especially dosage-sensitive genes, so genes that if you have too much or too little, and FoxG1 is a great example of that. You have too much FoxG1. FoxG1 is picked up very consistently in um, glioblastomas, for example, so brain tumors. So this is exactly what you might expect to happen for a gene that is important in driving cell proliferation, you know, in utero, that if there's too much of it or it's overexpressed, that it could also be associated with types of brain, can brain cancers. That's not to say it's a driving mutation in brain cancers, but they definitely, you know, people who study oncology definitely pick this particular gene up uh, and, and seem to think it is, you know, clinically relevant, its expression level. It's not just some sort of passenger in the oncogene. So what, what I was really saying was it, it, it's more of an experimental design where we're trying to protect against error by having different mutations or different patients uh, uh, when we look for cell phenotypes. So our first, um, our first, uh, the first thing we did was just, I, I guess I was a bit surprised when we started looking into this area, how I would have, for a gene that seems so important in brain, so certainly the mouse knockout was done in 1995, but I, I, I would have thought there would have been a lot more work done on it. So there was not that much human cell modeling, like what we're, 
you know, what our paper is, is showing. And I could see people had grants. You know, you could dig around NIH's website. You could see what people get. It's an abstract. And I could see what the Fox G1 Family Foundation was giving out money for. And I just, it surprised me. So I guess one thing that we, I will say about this protein, it is the, the most difficult gene my lab works with is this gene. And I'm pretty sure, so you might say, well, how is that, you know, how is that possible? Like it's just either it's expressed or it's not. And, and that's true. And, you know, one is always wary of, of that. If things aren't made properly, things look weird or, or what have you. But I'm, I'm now thinking that FOXG1 is under very, very intense regulation by a cell to make sure that its dosage is always kept in check and that the way it has evolved, and I don't know this, I mean, this is just my, my opinion right now, but you know, we have some kind of basic data on this. My view is that it, 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 it gets degraded very quickly and then the cell wants to get it out of there because it's so powerful and that that just evolved in such a way that there's, when it, it's required, for example, during expansion of the neural progenitor cell pool, whatever checks and balances are put in place to degrade it or put it out of commission somehow are off and it can go crazy and it can you know drive proliferation of the cells. But as soon as the cell hits its peak proliferation or it's expanded enough progenitors, that this thing, that this protein is, is, is turned off very, very robustly. And my, my feeling is it's under like constant negative regulation. And again, this is speculation. And so all proteins degrade. There's a natural life cycle of proteins. They're made, they degrade, they're made, they degrade, even if the steady state is, is, is constantly present. So my feeling is that the degradation around FOXG1 is much, 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 much more intense or stronger or than any than many other proteins. And I my feeling is because any protein that is so uh, can really change a cell. So this would probably be the case too with the Yamanaka type genes, for example, OC4, SOX2. If I had to guess, that those would be under very, very careful regulation as well. So. That's speculation, but what is not speculation is that we see a lot of variation in FOXG1. You know, we have, we can make NPCs and not see a band in the Western gel where FOXG1 should absolutely be there. My initial thinking on this is that it's related to, was the cell made properly? Did it proliferate right? Maybe they're not quite the right cell. So we're always checking this. And the first figure in this paper, if you want to look into the Google Drive document, for example, we just needed to get eyes on it. So... You know, we, we knew we had the patient cells ready for study, but we need to be able to see um, when it was expressed, where it was expressed, so we could, you know, what is going on with this thing? So that's why we created that uh, that reporter line. So if you look in the in the figure, this would be figure one from the paper, it's maybe even easier just to see it online, it's all open access, uh, is the, the, you can tag endogenous protein. So we're not making the protein, it's already in there. We're adding a little, um, I think it's D tomato in this case, but you know, it's basically glowing red. And the beauty of this is that you insert it into the gene itself. Uh, so you're in the right locus, you know, the right area. And the RNA gets made where you have FOXG1 with your fluorescent tag, which is all just an RNA, single RNA strand. But there's a little thing called 2A in between your FOXG1 and your red tag. And when the, uh, protein machinery sees 2A, I believe it's a, it's, it's, it's a skipping mechanism, but the, the most important part is that you basically make two separate proteins. So in other words, you have a readout, a live readout with the, the glowing red cells 
of when FOXG1 was transcribed, but you don't mess with the protein by having a, a tag attached to it. So you can see from that first figure, when we induce um, using our, you know, the kind of tools that everybody uses, this dual SMAD inhibition, you can see we, we, we see FOXG1 turned on very, very quickly. So the, the cells have not become neuronal yet, and yet FOXG1 about, I think it's day four or five, I should bring it up myself here. Um, um, Yeah, we, we start to pick up signal at just five days. Into, so these are these are still kind of stem cell-like, you know? They're not, we need about 12 to 13 days for differentiation. And we can start to seeing FOXG1 expressed uh, quite, quite early. And if you look at the Westerns, we did this just to not be reliant on the protein itself to make sure that this would be H and I, or H. Um, just taking three normal people, are we seeing it behave as we would expect from the red fluorescent protein? Or Sorry, it's D-tomato, but it doesn't matter. A glowing red cell. And here you get a sense of the variation I'm talking about. And that's why we put that in there in 1H. So if you look at, we induce stem cells, that would be day zero, to form neurons or you know, neural progenitor cells. And you can see that, like take control two, for example. At day seven, we start to see signal. And yet... We don't see signal at day seven in control one. Now, you might say we might pick it out at day eight because then our next sample point was day 12. But it just gives you a really good sense of the variation that we see in this. And these were done at exactly the same time by exactly the same person. So probably the variation here is related to the, the stem cells themselves. But if you look, if your eye looks across just day 12 here uh, from control one, two, and three, you can see there's like threefold difference in level of FOXG1. Why is that? It's the same it's the same reagents, um, uh, the same chemicals, the same person. So I, I don't have an answer to that question, except to say we don't see that level of variation with our other proteins we work on. It's like quite, it's much more stable than, uh, than that. So this, we also needed to make sure that, you know, um, this kind of also makes one nervous because you ask yourself, well, FOXG1 starts to be expressed before these things become neuronal. Are you going to even be able to make these cells at all? And of course, our expectation was that we could because these kids are alive and their brains do form and they form, you know, they're smaller, but they certainly the shape is looks like all the rest of us. So to, to, to see some developmental effect here would be, would be, would be peculiar. So our, our, you know, that's not, this is all control healthy cells. So we, we were able to say, we're able to, you know, this is when this thing is expressed it was very important to us because we just weren't sure when this thing was turned on or off. And I'll say now, just in my lab, the cell line we use as a quality control metric across our other projects. So I, like I said, we're quite obsessed with making sure induction is normal. I mean, you, there's so many different growth factors when you're turning stem cells into, into neurons that, you, you know, maybe it's, you didn't freeze it properly. Maybe the company made a mistake. So we use this line now to monitor quality of, um, of neural induction in my lab. So people, again, across different projects will just say, do, do I start to see the, the cells glowing red, you know, in a control line at day five, six or seven? Because it means that, you know, my dual somatic inhibition is working, I should see this on. So in other words, this line has become a positive control for, for the group. Um, okay, I guess the one other thing I should just mention here is that, you know, if you look at the mature cells, we also wanted to see its expression pattern after induction. So I differentiate between Neural induction, that's from a stem cell to a, a committed progenitor. And then differentiation, where you have a committed progenitor, which could become a oligodendrocyte, astrocyte, or, or uh, neuron, uh, differentiating that into a, into, a, into a CNS cell type.
And that's what we've done in I, where we start with the MPC. So that's a new day zero. And if you just take samples, protein samples, four days, 11 days, 16 days, 30 days, you can see that we Fox G1 gradually decreases, which is what you would expect as this, these cells become post-mitotic. But it's also important for, um, you know, we still see a signal at day 30, but that's like, these are cells that form synapses and we can record action potentials from them. And you can see the difference in Fox G1 level from a neural progenitor cell, so committed progenitor to a differentiated neuron is quite substantial. You know, I would say it's five times less expressed in our hands at, after whatever that is, you know, four weeks of differentiation. So, you know, that has some implications for, you know, when are you looking, if you're studying Fox G1 disease, you know, if you're looking at post-mitotic cells, your resolution of your system is, is drops precipitously. Maybe it comes back on in a different cell state. That's certainly what the mouse people might say, but that's the kind of thing that would make me kind of nervous to do studies at a day 30 differentiated cell to start looking at Fox G1. You know, you know there's gonna be trouble because there's, there's not a lot of it. That's not to say it doesn't have a function there. It's just, you know, you know, one always has to make decisions about what to study and what to look at. All right, let's look at our cases. Um, so we had three cases. Well, uh, I think two came from Coriel. The, the patient I talked about is A. So she came with, is this our, yeah, so I think it's about three and a half megabases. We have it all here. So she had, there's a few genes affected, and I, uh, but nothing that worried me too much. You know, you always get worried if there's very, very large deletions, if your interpretation is really valid for, uh, for the particular gene you're studying. Uh, but in this case, we were reassured just that the phenotype seemed to be quite consistent with what, what, what other people were reporting. Uh, we got, the other two are from Coriel. So this, I think we call them case B and case C. Um, and those are put up by these family foundations, I believe. But of course, they come from a, from a single, single family. So you can see. And then if you look at our Western, F, G, and H, we could, you know, it's very, very clear. You know, you're going to pick up. A, uh, a loss of, of dosage of, of, of Fox G1. You can see that. And that's something that's that's very consistent what we can see. Then we see the Sanger traces. So, so one, you just want to make sure these cells are what you think they are. So we sequence them, we check them, make sure that everything's okay. So I guess this brings us to the nitty gritty, which is, you know, what, what cell phenotypes you have. So I guess based on the patient work, we work, we're happy that we could actually make NPCs, neuroprogenitor cells from the stem cells. So I guess that's the first thing. You know, is Fox G1 required to, to do something to allow these cells to become neurons? And it, that does not seem to be the case. Even though they're turned on at day five or six or seven or eight, somewhere in there, it doesn't seem to yet be doing anything to affect uh, the, 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 the induction of, you know, neural induction. And really, you can never know that until you try it out. Um, uh, I wonder if we had those, anyways, I have those pictures on my computer. So, you know, the first thing we noticed once we'd made the healthy NPCs, but right new on right, right with his eye, he could see that um, the proliferation is slower. You know, we did a lot of work, even like a calcium image, all stuff that we don't you know, have in the paper, but we looked, looked a lot at these cells to, you know, and, you know, making sure all the cell numbers are right. So just, can we see the proliferation phenotype that we might expect based on the, you know, all the mouse, uh, the mouse work and everything people had been writing about. And I'd say the answer to that is yes, but that's that's not quantitative. That's a qualitative assessment, but it was quite robust. And I would say even, you know, to Nuon's eye, to my eye, again, this is not quantitative, but like we even, it even looked like you started to see cells starting to polarize after two or three, you know, cell divisions. Uh, so it, it, it was quite obvious that these were not normal cells. You know, usually we have a 24-hour, uh, the cell will, will double every 24 hours. And again, these are committed to progenitor cells. They are, uh, you know, 
there's defining features of neural progenitor cells. And yet these, so, but yet they still proliferate. So, you know, it wasn't just, they sort of stopped. So, you know, that was telling too. You can, you can maintain these lines. They're just, they're just a lot slower than the, than the healthy matched um, uh, first degree relatives. So I, we needed to get in and get a handle on that. And I think the whole paper was, is really based around, is there different ways we can show that the cell proliferation phenotype exists? From the literature, people definitely talk about patterning in FOXG1, and we just did not go there. Our main concern with this paper was, why, isn't, why hasn't this been put out already by people who study this like for a living? There's FOXG1 labs out there. So I was a bit concerned about that. But then when I saw the antibody not work, uh, different, we had to really test a lot of different antibodies. Like it made more sense to me why this wouldn't be out there yet. Just a sort of systematic establishment of different patient lines or knockouts, and then just evaluating the proliferative phenotype. So we were not ambitious, I would say, with this paper. We really needed to get a handle on, is this actually just a viable model to, to model this disease? And is it behaving the way we might expect? So it's a conservative approach, but I think it's critical for our, the next steps we're taking. It's sort of the foundation of the house. You know, I don't want to start putting up the roof and the windows and some of the, you know, hanging art on the wall until that we've locked down the like four inch slab of concrete, you know, of the basement. And we really know it, it's good. We know what to expect. We know what to look for, not dealing with cell line artifacts because obviously we want to keep perusing, you know, Fox G1 and its role in in development, but we just we really need to know basically what what happens here. So that's that's really the foundation of this paper. That was our driving focus. So we 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 took a, I think three different approaches. One was just if you throw in a label of synthesizing DNA, you would expect the cell that's dividing slow more slowly to to show less of that label. So that's that DRDU experiment. This is Figure Three, and we've tried to you know we count all this stuff. Or I should say Nuon counts all this stuff. Uh, but it's just nice to actually see what we're looking at. So we've shown in this image, I go, we show all, we show control A matched to case A. And what your eye should be able to see is that every second image, which are the cases, the three samples we have here, there's just less green glowing cells. So I should also just say, this is probably the supplement of this paper, I don't remember, but when we add this label, which again, when the cells are all dividing all the time in a dish, including from the patients, it's, it's, they, they completely and totally divide. They just, they, they divide more slowly. When cells divide, of course, they need to replicate their DNA. If you replicate your DNA, you need to find, you know, purines and pyrimidines, A, G, C, T, and you need to, you know, start, you know, matching the template strand and adding these bases. So BRDU is a very cool chemical and it's used all the time in the cancer field to pick up, you know, um, proliferation. And it's a measure of the, basically the, the base is, is one of the bases is labeled uh, with a, you know, an epitope that an antibody can, can, can find. Uh, this is uridine, which will pair with A. So it's not like it's, it's very, makes the cells very sick. You know, it's, this is not good to have this base in there, but it allows you to label synthesizing DNA. So that's what we did. And when you do it for 24 hours, all the cells are going green across cases and controls, just to give you a sense of how, and I think we put that in the supplement, I just don't remember. So it really tells you, you're, we're really picking this up in the cases. This is not like they're not proliferating. They're absolutely synthesizing DNA. But when we do four hours, so this is BRDU exposure in a dish for four hours, wash it out after four hours, and then let it sit for another um, you know, 20 hours, so just a one-day experiment. This is what you see at four hours. So it, it captures, it's a snapshot of, of DNA synthesis after four hours exposure to this chemical. And you can see the controls are going green, and yet the cases are, it is there, it's hard to see maybe here, but it's, it's, it's quite faint. And the intensity of the cell should also be, is actually a quantitative, we did not quantify, we do you know, amount per cell. Um, 
so that was just the first thing we looked at to make very sure that you know your eyes see one thing in the dish but it was it's very obvious uh, it was very obvious to us the other thing we did was the um, cell sorting this is also a very nice very quantitative technique and sort of classic in the proliferation field where you use uh, DNA content again as a proxy for cell cycle state so just briefly you know the cells in a sort of standard state have you know a certain amount of DNA right before a cell divides into two it will have twice as much DNA as it does in its sort of baseline state and at once a cell makes a decision to divide and it starts synthesizing new DNA the amount of DNA in between sort of cell state one and cell state two, cell state two being just before cell division, you're actually gradually increasing your amount of DNA. So if you look at, um, if you look at figure C, figure three C, these peaks that we see are the DNA gets labeled. Um, and the more DNA you have, the more, um, the more intense the, um, the signal. And you can then sort the amount of, of, of signal intensity that you have. So what you you can really pick out two peaks here. So we have a heavy blue peak and a light blue peak, which is artificially colored by us. It's all colored the same way. And the, 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 the dark blue peak is cells in a baseline state. And the light blue is once it's got twice as much DNA, it's about to divide. And what we could see, you would expect a cell that's dividing more slowly might have more cells uh, in the sort of one end state, the, uh, the, the, the baseline state. And that's exactly what we see. More actively dividing cells, you will by chance pick up a higher proportion of cells with twice as much DNA. And again, this is all done. It's all internally controlled. So you're, you're just asking, what's the percentage or proportion of cells in with, with 2x DNA versus 1x DNA, for example? And I should say, I remember when Nuan did this and quantified these. No matter where, he, you have to put your little bar. If you look at figure 3C, you have to put your little bar somewhere. So there's like some art to it. No matter where he put his bar, he always could see, you know, I, systematically he would do it across cases and controls it always worked out exactly what you see in d it was very consistent so it's it seems like a small effect i think the effect size is like five percent so you have five percent more cells about in in figure in um in the g1 phase versus the g2 phase uh, but it's very consistent and this of course was reported in the mice so it was you know nice to to see that but again very robust um, a very robust finding. And this is nice for us, right? You know, the students are making the cell models. They're trying to pair it to family. Like everything we're doing to be careful is probably pays off when you pick up these different effects. Because as soon as you start adding noise or you're like grabbing controls from different places or men versus boys versus girls and so on, you start to pick up more and more variation. So anyway, this was, this was nice to see. Um, I'll move on to figure four. Um, this again, I won't. I won't go. I mean, again, people can just pop in and ask questions. Or I'm just sort of giving a, a highlights of, of our, our our logic here. But um, our next thing, once we identify uh, a phenotype, so the cell phenotype here would be there's a, you know less proliferation of these cells in a dish. Um, you want to see it in a in an isogenic situation. Isogenic just means that you have a healthy control cell line. You go in and do something to the DNA and you pair it with its initial founder cell line and you say, this is my case in control. They're identical except for what I did to it. Now I expect to see whatever I saw on the patient cells. So of course for us, we're gonna go in, we're gonna make a mutation in FOXG1. We're gonna take the, the parent cell again, which is unmodified. We're gonna pair it to the newly modified, let's call it daughter uh, line. But again, they're identical. 
except for what we did. And then we're going to do the assays that I just described. And uh, we, you can see in figure 4a, um, this is just the mutations we induce. And we just take advantage of the fact that CRISPR is, um, it's accurate, but it's not precise. So you go in with, uh, I, guess, I get asked all the time, can we use CRISPR to like, you know, fix the kids and put it in their brain and stuff. So there's a lot of issues with that. But the big picture is pretty much you don't want to be hacking up the genome in a living person yet. You know, we'll see where the, the I think it's obviously very promising. It's amazing technology. Um, but really a lot of wild stuff happens. And I think you might have some examples here. I don't remember. Okay, here we have a 40 base pair deletion. So we were not trying to make a 40 base pair deletion. We just go in, we do some cuts, and we basically then screen for, for what happened. And, you know, sometimes you get nothing, sometimes you get something, sometimes you get, like, crazy stuff, like lots of different cuts. So um, uh, we selected uh, two different knockouts. These are heterozygous knockouts, so there's still one functional allele. In other words, what we expect Fox G1 syndrome to look like. And then we ran it through our, our these two, this BRDU and this uh, fluorescent-activated cell sorting assay and it did what we would expect it to do which is you know that the proliferation was affected when you when you um, made mpcs from these from these cells okay the the next thing we looked at and i'll be honest we cilia was something that we were looking at in my lab not for this project we didn't have some brilliant insight but i was really happy with the way this turned out so we were looking at cilia for another paper in stem cell reports we had just put out and we like doubled down on it and did it in Crazy amount of work on cilia as stem cells were differentiating to dopamine producing midbrain cells. This is done for a different disease that affects substantia nigra cells called Leshnaya syndrome. This is a 2021 stem cell reports paper. Doesn't matter for today, but the, the, I guess the big picture is I really thought uh, cilia development was an underlying feature of a different disease. Because of that, uh, Nuon. Thank God I have great students in my lab because they do things like this. They're chatting over beers or whatever. Talk to, uh, I think that's Scott and Vince's paper, this other disease. And he got to thinking that cilia are actually, they do a lot of things. So just very briefly, you know, you have motile cilia, non-motile cilia. So the most famous ones are motile cilia. They're in like even bacteria, little tails wag. They're in sperm. Uh, they're, they line your gut. So they're, they're, they're cells with motile cilia line your gut and they sort of make... Uh, can move the, the liquid around to allow better absorption in your, your gut, for example. But the non-motile cilia, which is what I'm talking about here, um, are an amazing little developmental antenna. So remarkably, cells, I think almost all cells, uh, right as they're thinking about maybe differentiating, they stick out a little antenna called a non-motile cilia and look for or wait for signals from the surrounding environment to tell it what to do. So of course, there's also the cell membrane with the receptors on it and so on, but there's this specialized organelle that the cell will, during particular phases of uh, the cell cycle. So if you look at figure 5a, um, Nuon very kindly has put in an image of when the cilia is expected to be there. And that's in that baseline state that I talked about before, not while it's divided and not while it's synthesizing DNA. When it's synthesizing DNA, it's made the decision to divide again. This organelle seems to be really important for should I differentiate or not. So before it makes a decision to proliferate, it has to decide not to differentiate. And it sticks out this little antenna. So Nuon got the, the nice idea to use presence of cilia as a proxy for does are these cells proliferative or not. And he wanted to use this as a third way 
to prove his point about cell proliferation. So this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. We're conservative by nature in the sense that we want to be technically accurate, different patients, different samples, knockouts, and so on. But also when we have assays and we're making a claim, I don't want to just show it in one way. We want to show it in, okay, fact sorting shows this. Uh, visually, I could see this, BRDU. So this is just meant to be complementary to the proliferative phenotype. And that's interpretation. Cilia could be around for a lot of different reasons, but you can see from figure uh, B, C, and uh, B and C, uh, figure five, it was also quite robust. So again, you would expect a higher proportion of cilia in that G0, G1 phase. That's in the pre-proliferative -pre phase. And it's exactly what we see. If you look at the, um, the bar graph, we could just look at uh, figure 5D. So the cases have a lot more of the cilia. That means that's very consistent with the facts that you're picking up more cells that are that kind of have to be a G0, G1. And remember, the beauty of using the cilia as a so-called proliferative marker is that the machinery used to make the cilia is required. <laughs> these are these kinetic cores is required to pull the cell apart. It's either one or the other, and it can't be both. So it's it's like it's evolved that way. So you know if the cilia is present, it cannot be dividing because the, the machinery of a cell used to make the cilia are needed to, to, to allow the cell to divide. So it's 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 quite nice. And if you look at it, you can see it floating around space. It's kind of cool. It's a muon has a nuclear stain here, which is, you know, this daffy basically stains DNA. The reason it's floating up in space and looks like this sort of long, uh, stick is because it's attached to the cell body um, and it's we don't there's no cell body uh, marker here so just uh, interesting but they look it's very uh, it's very uh, characteristic so the cilia here we just use as a proxy for um, proliferation okay and then the final parts of this paper um, and I'll maybe I'll take a break after this before jumping into what we're thinking on next and we can discuss or talk or not um, the final parts here were um, we, I guess there's two other parts. One, we wanted to reverse the effect by repairing the genome of one of our diseased individuals. And we wanted to give back FOXG1 uh, protein and try and reverse our effect. So this is kind of an important, if you're really right about a cell phenotype, you should be able to give the system back what it needs and reverse them. So there's two ways to do that. One, just give it back the gene. Um, and to fix the, the genotype. So we always try to do this across all our diseases now. So we, we're, we're, the lab's kind of like a little machine. You know, we have little modules, technical modules, like how to make neurons, how to repair a, a genome, you know, how to test our gRNA so that the CRISPR works and is efficient. So it's highly, highly inefficient. This particular, what I'm about to talk about here, I'm talking about figure six. So CRISPR knockouts are easy because you don't need template DNA. It does not involve homology-directed repair. So for people in the audience who do this stuff, the minute you need to send in a DNA cutting enzyme, so CAS, and uh, a template that you hope slash pray is going to get swapped into your locus of interest, your, your like efficiency of making a cell line drops like a hundredfold. And this is a very, you go to any conferences, you'll hear people talk about all this time. How do we make this more efficient? There's all kinds of tricks that people use, some of which we've tried. Um, I'm pretty convinced now that you, you <laughs> it's really dependent on the, chromosomal location, the locus that you happen to be looking at, because we've had stuff just not work after making 100 different cell lines, picture that. So we, to go clonal, we, we will often, um, uh, we like to take advantage of stem cell reprogramming, which is inefficient as well, maybe 2% of cells reprogram. And we do at the same time, the CRISPR-Cas uh, HDR experiment. 
it basically means you're having to make stem cell lines, iPSCs, from all these different somatic lines, and then you have to go and check if any of it has worked. But what I like about doing that is it is essentially clonal. So if you start trying to edit in a stem cell, you and I know you know 80% of labs do this, you're, you're, you're going to have trouble for, for two reasons. One, you're not clonal. You've got this pool of cells that you've hit, and you're going to have to take it down to single cell. And let me tell you, iPSCs like to be around their friends. As soon as they're on their own, you have a lot of instability, and it, you might be selecting for cells, you know, stem cells that are um, uh, might have gained a selective advantage through some mutation in some other gene that allows it to keep proliferating. The uh, the other problem is as soon as you start, you know, cutting up DNA with double strand breaks, you also induce genomic instability. So you want ideally you don't want to be cutting in a stem cell. So we cut in like a skin cell, for example. As we induce uh, uh, with the Yamanaka factors, so I, as we're turning them into iPSCs, and then we look for colonies, and we say we pray that we have different colonies that have taken on different genotypes. So that's how we're able to do this, and that's how we're able to go clonal. So if you just, if your eye look at 6A, uh, you can see that uh, base G there, where the mutation in our case C is. So it's where the, there's an N uh, base that's been picked up because it's effectively a a polymorphic region, but of course, this is the mutation. There's a green peak and a black peak. And then if you look in the repair, you can see that it's now become a G. So we've, we've repaired uh, the, uh, what's the green? I guess it A back to a G, but notice there's still that little green peak there. So that is a measure, semi-quantitative measure of impurity of our, of our, um, of our experiment. So, you know, we, ideally you would have no little peak there in under the repair. So that means probably we had 80, 90% efficiency. So even with our tool of trying to make it clonal, um, we, it's not perfect. So that's just to, just to tell you, but it's pretty, it's pretty good. So we were, we, we, you know, acknowledge that and, and use that and move on. So you can see, we're able to you know, prove that we can make the protein again. And then of course we just run this through a battery of proliferative tests, the cilia marker, the facts, and we, um, um, uh, we can reproduce our effect. So we can rescue the effect. We can, we can make it more like baseline. But here again, we're very careful. We often don't, uh, we want to keep people with their natural control. So it's sort of a different way of doing, you know, when you're doing mouse experiments, you'll have your five mice in this group and five mice in that group. I often think in these experiments in terms of who gets matched with who, what is the outcome of that experiment? And then you run another experiment in another pair where you have case B and case C. In this case, we're able to pool, but in, in many cases, that's not necessarily the case. And you might just have to look for outcome and be like, okay, this went up and that went, they both go, they both, some, some cellular output both gets increased um, um, on your assay. So it's just, we have to think very carefully about how we're, how we're, how we're doing these types of experiments. But in this case, these, uh, the, the repair, this is fine because it's just one person versus their, their, their founding cell line. All right, and then finally, we just we we the last point. This is Figure Seven. Is just we need to give back the gene to one of the patients, and I believe this was Case B. I don't remember Case B. Yeah. Um, so here we're we're putting in a inducible construct into a basically random region of the genome. It's called it's a particular locus, and we target the vector to this particular locus to uh, allow us to turn the gene on or off. And we really like this because, you know, it's once we put it in, it doesn't just start producing the protein. 
it only turns on the protein when we give it a special drug. And this is a, sort of a very classic system molecular biology called the doxycycline inducible system. So here you can see that uh, when, we, when we do this, again, in a patient, we can really reverse the effect. So I think the strengths of this paper are not, it's sort of things are behaving the way we expect. It just, in my, my mind, it sets the groundwork that these are viable models for the disease, that they're you know, replicating what you expect FOXG1 to do given the overwhelming data in the mouse knockout uh, studies. If it wasn't doing this, I'd say it would be pretty weird. Um, so uh, that's my take, that this is sort of a, excuse the term, but like technically excellent uh, conclusion about the role of FOXG1 in human cells and its role in cell proliferation. That, that to me is the point of this paper, but it's not, the, the novelty is sort of what we've done and the sort of assays we have, and it's like one of the main, hopefully one of the main FOXG1 human papers, but it's doing what we expect and it was hopefully done properly. That's my take on this uh, paper. I'm gonna stop here for a bit before I do anything else and open up the floor to questions or anything, uh, anything like that. Thank you, Kyle. Um, you kind of like were kept answering questions I would have had throughout time. We, we were we, <laughs> we were discussing this in the back channel that uh, we wanted to do this more interactive, but you kind of in the meantime were at answering already questions we had discussed. So, <laughs> so you're a great speaker, like you discuss, like you explain everything so thorough, so it's wonderful, but it's maybe kind of uh, sounds a little bit lonely for you. So we wanted to make sure that. No, no, I, 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 whatever, whatever people want to do, it's, it's fine. I, uh, whatever, whatever, I, I don't mind. I, I lecture for like three hours to blank screens of a hundred student faces. This, uh, this is no problem. Uh, so as long as people are. It, yeah, I wanted to ask like the repair mechanism, right? Let's say one day we actually um, do this in human. Is there a problem with um, with long term with um, with dosage basically? Like um, because you said it's kind of a switch. Do we know exactly when or for how much or for how long? to repair this gene and then kind of stop because too much leads to the disorder too little is another disorder and you kind of have to hit the sweet spot so um yeah if you could explain yes. a little bit do you mean the gene editing or do you mean the the doxycycline inducible dose yeah exactly so when would you like induce it and then stop um yeah so this i this is always the question, which is, you know, what, what is the, how much is too much or too little? For this gene, you know, it's going to be very important. So um, I think Nuan and Wishan just did the, the the typical thing where we were. This is not that creative, but we were looking at what do we see in the in a in a normal person in an NPC from a from a healthy line that we feel comfortable working with. And then they added different amounts of doxycycline, I think for a 24 hour period. And they just waited till they saw, you know, which one of these different doses, you're literally adding a drug and you can measure out how much drug you stick in the dish. Um, and they were looking to, to see that it, to their eye, just to give you an idea of how unscientific this is, uh, when it matched the intensity of the band from the control. So it's certainly true that they got too much uh, on some doses 
and I, I I don't remember what sweet spot they took. I don't know. That's probably in the supplement of the paper where they're just like, if you add this, you're getting this much. And this, this dose looks the most similar to a healthy control cell. So that's, that's, that's how they did it. Um, I think for a protein like this though, uh, it will, it will, uh, we can't get at the subtleties of Fox G1 amounts and it probably is very important in the cell. It's just for the sort of extreme phenotypes you see in a diseased person, you know, all we're looking to see is, you know, do you start synthesizing more DNA with the BRDU and the, you know, the facts and the cilia, you can, you can easily pick those up. But if you had to look in a more refined way or maybe something, a more subtle phenotype that's not so just like in your face, you can imagine that you're going to start to have problems using a, a tool like that. But this is, again, why we, we looked at phenotypes like this where they're easily measurable, they're reproducible, they're done in a day, um, you can get multiple replicates. So now we have a handle on, it's almost like setting the, the, the sort of limits of what your system can handle. But I think... We will never get it right, I guess, is the answer. We will never be correct in how much we're putting in or, or not putting in. And um, we did actually, uh, this was random, but we did actually accidentally make a, a cell line that was just pumping out Fox G1. So this is like CRISPR edited, not dark. It was very weird why that happened. I don't, still don't know why. And the cells were very abnormal, I can tell you. Like, uh, so we know even our own hands, it's not going to be okay to have uh, be pumping out too much Fox G1 uh, into a cell. So yeah, dosage, um, it, it's not accurate, but it's, <laughs> the, 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 it's, it's a sledgehammer enough to rescue the phenotypes that we were interested in for this paper. Jamie, you on mic, do you want to say something? I did actually, um, you, know, you actually did answer a whole bunch of the questions. Um, so yeah, you were incredibly good for that. Uh, one of them uh, I had though was more of a, let me, let me get my question here, right. Uh, when I saw it in your paper, uh, could you explain a little bit more about the FOXG1 uh, and the, uh, what's it here now, the amino acid forkhead domain? Can you, because like, this isn't interesting, um, I wasn't really sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no problem. So the um, fork, so forkhead was found in this is a about a hundred amino acid domain. It was first found when people were initially doing genetics. They would basically go into model organisms, throw in a horrible poison that mutates DNA, and then look for cool phenotypes. Basically, so forkhead is the name of this weird-looking fly that was found in like 92, 93, based on a random mutagenesis throwing in this poison um, into, a, into a fruit fly and then seeing this kind of crazy phenotype in the fly and it looked like a forkhead. So now that, that once they identified that fly, they're able to sort of backtrace the genetics and they identified this gene um, that again, based on what the fly looked like was called forkhead. So then they call the gene forkhead in the fly. And then of course, once they discover that everyone goes and picks their favorite organism, whether that's like a mouse, a rat, human, monkey, whatever, and go, well, do we have anything that looks similar to this forkhead gene in different species? And the answer in humans is yes, that there's like multiple different uh, highly conserved uh, genes that have this forkhead-like domain in it. I think there's like maybe 50 different forkhead genes in the human. 
and Fox G1 is one of the families that would have evolved from the insects. And I think it might even be in plants, but anyway, it's a, it turns out that the domain is a important DNA binding domain. I guess that's the first thing. That means that it's a protein that goes to DNA and can turn things on or off, uh, but doesn't have to. It's just, it, it's able to attach to DNA. Uh, and it turned out in the case of all forkhead genes that they have critical roles in development. So if you look in human across, you know, this is Fox G1, F-O-X-G1, but there's Fox A, there's Fox B, there's Fox C, there's Fox D. I think one of them is, but it doesn't matter. So there's all these different foxes that do very important things in human and mice. And people have made knockouts of all these things. But the fly, again, just had this one, I think. Uh, and this is, that was how it was initially discovered. So it turns out the critical critical area of DNA codes for about 100 amino acid structure, which is shaped in such a way to be able to interact with DNA. And it seems to interact with DNA uh, uh, like genes that are really important in, in development. And that's not the case with all transcription factors. They can bind to lots of different places based on the particular residues, the A, T, T, G, C, whatever it is, right? So the forkhead binds to like a very special set of, um, of DNA bases. I think it's about nine bases. Does that answer your question or is that just more confusing? Uh, no, no, it actually was about, oh, well, I mean, and, and, and the fact that it just, made me have more questions um but that that actually was very interesting so that this is a thing then that's um showing in other creatures as well like this is something we all have in common this uh for kid thing oh yeah so it's uh, so this gene though is is, is ice, fox g is 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 specific to you know things with a brain so mice have it uh so it would not fox g like evolved from some founder you know, creature, insect or something. I'm not sure what the founder of the initial forkhead is. Um, but yeah, all the other species, it would have, you know, duplicated, changed a bit and evolved in such a way to have different subvariants of it that are all now functional genes and many of which are critical for, you know, development. And not all are in brain, obviously, right? They're different, uh, but important for, um, uh, for development. Fantastic. Um... And I do have, uh, does anyone else have another uh, question? Because I do have another one, if no one else has got anything to hand. Go ahead, Jamie, go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, so I saw um, in, your, um, in your paper when it says, when you're studying the mechanisms that are involved in the switch from proliferation to differentiation, um, is this to just try and gleam some insight as to why uh, the mechanisms to activate, like like uh, my, uh, my vague understanding, please correct me, was when you talked about studying the mechanisms, it was like, you can see these mechanisms happen, but you're not sure what kicks them off. So you're trying to just at least study them to try and find some kind of common factor or maybe something, is that right? Yeah, so that that's really kind of leads into what I would talk about next, because um, that's really the main, the most important question, I think, you know, that first, the paper we just looked at, like, it's really, you know, can we make these models? Are they good? And are they behaving the way you might expect them to behave if they're missing Fox G1? So I would say the answer to that is all yes. And as far as I'm concerned, that now means we're allowed to study <laughs> Fox G1 under these conditions, you know, cells in a dish that are growing and expanding. You know, sometimes it does not make sense to do that because they behave 
very abnormally. Um, so that that was um, what led us into our next project. Um, so I, you know, the I, I'm I can answer your question, but I want to I think start telling you what we did next. Is this is this okay, Katerina? Or, uh... Yes, that's totally fine. I was just yeah. Uh... Great, Jamie is doing such a great job. He's the the non-scientist, but soon to be, I think. But he's like, <laughs> um, he went through this science society training. <laughs> and I'm being, I'm kind of very proud of the progress he's making. Sorry, science society that. academy. That's what he went through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's more. That's the, it's the million dollar question, I guess. Is it's the most important question, Jamie? I think is what you're asking, which is how does this happen? Why, if I'm interpreting you correctly, is it why? How is it able to to do this? Why is it so you know powerful? Is that is that true? yeah? It, it was it was that, and it was also when you were specifically saying studying the mechanisms. It seemed to me more like um, in order for you to try and find this out, you were like, okay, we can't see why this is happening but we can look at everything around about it and see what we can glean from that yeah that's right so it's a it's sort of the output measures of of problems in the gene we can we can detect and they're really robust you know they're really obvious um which is again kind of reassuring when you um and i think not not everything is is, is this way um so we maybe i'll just uh I'll, I'll, i don't have i have images but i um I'll, I'll just try and just describe. Um, we are the next thing we've done, and we're you know getting ready to submit this. It sort of gets a little bit about Jimmy's James' question, which is, how is it able to do this? So you know, my lab's going to carry on working with uh, Fox G1, you know, deeper and deeper and deeper, because um, it's so interesting, and we now have the models to be able to to look at it. But I was very struck by here we have this critically important transcription factor known since '95, and yet where is the you know maps of where this thing binds in what cell type what is it actually turning on or off like so there's three or four different experiments that have done that two are in mouse and one is done in an, on a, in a in brain tumor cells so that's and that's okay so we, we were like okay i guess this has been done that's fine let's go look at this but then we saw like zero overlap between the human brain tumor cell so where does fox g1 bind in the genome and uh, in the mouse tissue. And I thought there could be lots of different reasons for that. One, you're talking about, you know, a resection of an adult you know, brain tumor, mixed tissues and so on. And then you have this relatively heterogeneous mouse tissue. So they, they're pulling out, you know, um, you know, ideally neural progenitor cells from mouse. So this is like E11, E11 and a half, which again is a mixed tissue. And the time points are never perfect across different, you know, um, uh, embryos. And then you're trying to sequence where uh, Fox G1 goes in the genome. And I got started to get very nervous because there was no uh, validation of antibodies, which is essential to map any of this. So I, we just realized that it seemed to be what we needed to, uh, to do. So the big picture here is, all this is to say is we, we did a large scale, very careful mapping of Fox G1 binding. We overlap that integrated it with rna sequencing so bear with me on my logic here for a second we took our disease patients and their controls and we asked what gene in npcs 
what genes are, what's the expression pattern of genes? What's, the, what's different in the disease cases and compared to the controls in MPCs? Then we took a healthy MPC cell line and we mapped, uh, and I'll describe it just sort of briefly, where FOXG1 binds. And then we integrate across both. We say what genes are going up or are changing between case and control. So no FOXG1 or FOXG1. And where do we see it binding the genome? And then we say, okay, that, that the sites that we have left are likely to be the ones where FOXG1 is supposed to bind and either drive expression of the gene or not. Um, that was our approach. And it's sort of what my students spent the last year uh, working on. And again, we're, we're basically ready to submit it uh, now. Um, I will just, so I'll just share a bit with you and then maybe I'll finish up. The, the approach, we had to do a lot of work on the antibody for FOXG1. So having good antibodies is, <laughs> I'm not sure why we don't see like three figures of every paper just confirming that what people are working with or telling us is, is, is working. So we did that for this because it was, if we're going to do a chip sequencing experiment, so chromatin immunoprecipitation, I can describe it in a second. You have to have a functioning antibody. So we did, you know, mass spec. Uh, so you, you, you need to know that your antibody can pull out FOXG1 from a group of proteins. It's called immunoprecipitation, and it's essential for an experiment like this. So we ran a FOXG1 IP where we're trying to pull out FOXG1 from a pool of cells, and we started off just expressing it to make sure we could do it. We even tagged it to make sure we can, you know, everything's working properly. And then you send it for protein sequencing, protein sequencing, and you just ask, do I pick up FOXG1? Because I better. I, just, I was supposed to pull it out of my like, huge plethora of proteins. So we were able to do that. We were really able to confirm that the protein was, the antibody was working. And we already had good feeling about it because we used it in that paper, but we, we had to test three or four and just seeing it work on a Western versus working on IP are two totally different things. Um, so we did a lot of different ways to make sure this antibody worked. And then after we, uh, we validated it, we ran, you know, five different chip sequencing experiments. So we would take healthy control NPCs, we ran our antibody and wherever FOXG1 is stuck to the genome, we're going to uh, sort of melt the protein and the DNA together. We're going to cut up all the DNA, which still has its protein attached. Then we're going to release the proteins from it after we've pulled out FOXG1. But that means we get all these DNA fragments that are in our new pool. And those are the DNA fragments that were stuck to FOXG1. So you do that five different times, pool all that together. You have a set of controls to make sure it's not just junk or noise and doing the you know, same thing where you're not using the FOXG1 antibody, you're pulling out a bunch of random proteins. And then you sequence it and you ask, where do I see, um, where do I see pile up? So where do I see a bunch of uh, resequencing reads that all have the same, are all in the same region? So that we, we, we compare it to some baseline control. Uh, and we just ask where, if FOXG1 is binding somewhere, we should see a lot of small DNA fragments that are all in the same area, basically. So uh, we did that and I'm very happy to say, and then again, I, I discussed the RNA-seq already, what genes go up, what genes go down. So if you cross-reference it, we the, the long story is we found about 1200 different genes that would meet our criteria. So that is, there's evidence for FOXG1 binding, and there's evidence that the gene is misregulated in a disease state. And again, it could be random, right? We're, we're very concerned with indirect versus direct effects. So an indirect effect example would be if I was studying Alzheimer's disease and I had uh, a brain from an Alzheimer's person and a brain from a perfectly matched control, and the, the Alzheimer's brain is a sort of shrunken looking thing. If I go in and look for differences between those two brains, I'm going to find tons and tons and tons of stuff. But 
that doesn't mean what I find has anything to do with the Alzheimer's process. It has to do with I have a shrunken, tiny brain that's been in a diseased state for like five years in someone's head. Uh, it doesn't mean what I'm seeing is incorrect. Yes, all these things are up or all these things are down, but it does not mean it's at all related to the process of disease. So the same holds true in what I'm talking about here. You can see lots of things that are legitimately associated with your you know, study variable, but they are just passengers on what you're seeing. And that's not what we want. We want direct, FoxG1 must buy into this site and it must either drive expression or de decrease expression. So other thing for anyone actually in the FoxG1 field, it's always talked about repressor, 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 repressor. This also was curious to me because no other 4CAD protein operates solely as a repressor. So I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me why this happened and I went back and dug in the literature and it turns out that's just what they were looking at. There was never, it was never exclusive, you know, as in it's not an activator of gene expression. And I can say, I think now, this thing definitely does a lot more than repression. It binds the DNA and depending who it associates with, the con genomic context, other proteins present, it can affect the genome in some way. So uh, certainly it can be a repressor, but uh, for sure, for sure, for sure, I, it can turn genes on or off. So what did we find? Uh, I, I, you know, we have you know, sort of beautiful data. This will come out soon. And if we were on a Zoom or something, I could show you some very nice, uh, of raw data. Um, so just to maybe trust me on this one, we very reassuringly saw kind of what people have been predicting for FOXG1. Um, so just to give you an example of cell proliferation. So I just showed you a bunch of images or you read about a bunch of images where when FOXG1 is missing, you start to see, you know, slower proliferation of, the, of, of neural progenitor cells. So when we did our whole analysis, again, this is integrated analysis, ChIP-seq, RNA-seq, you know, some of the first terms that come up, and we, we, we generate these terms by looking for the most, the, the highest frequency of significant terms, are things like cell proliferation. So, and you might say, well, you know, there's hundreds of genes involved in cell proliferation. And I would be the first to agree with you. It was just, it was, it was also quite robust. When we went to look at the peaks, we filtered out only peaks that possess, going back to um, Jamie's question, only peaks that had the forehead binding domain. So picture this now. You're not just running a chip seed. You're also saying I must see the uh, the, uh, the the loci that is known to bind forehead. And by the way, FoxG1 crystal structure has been mapped binding to DNA. So now I'm not talking about the amino acid domain. I'm talking about the DNA bases that allow FoxG1 to bind to it. And in this case, it's something like. T, 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 A, T, G, something like this. There's nine different bases that must be there. And in a few sites, it could be a purine or a pyridine, but it's, it's, it's very specific. And it, can, and it can only bind there because of the protein structure of the, uh, the amino acid 4K domain that we were just discussing before. So all of the peaks that we have in this paper are right in a 4K binding domain. So this is not some random noise or peaks. It's like quite consistent. And what was sort of beautiful about these data was the strength of the signal on genes like, just to give you an example of two that we're really looking at. So CDKN1C and CDKN1B, these are uh, by themselves can inhibit the cell cycle. So there are proteins that when any cells, they're very famous in cancer, when any cell is dividing, you could turn these genes on and they will stop the cell from dividing. They have that much power. So what was... Uh, amazing is that FOXG1 can function to as a repressor. So again, we have a big, beautiful peak in the promoter of these genes. 
it's binding there. And in the disease state, we see de uh, uh, decreased uh, amounts of the RNA from this from these two genes. So let's take CDKN1B. So these are inhibitors of the cell cycle. What I'm saying is that FOXG1 binds to the promoter of these two genes. By the way, these are not the two that are reported in the literature with FOXG1. This is all non-hypothesis driven, right? We're not making any guesses about where we think it binds. It's all mathematics. It's just statistics. Where does it bind? What's the height? What's the correction for multiple? So on and so on and so on. And then here's this huge peak with a fourth head domain in it. So it's extremely unlikely to be random and it's right in the promoter. So uh, this, the, the model I would put out to you to kind of answer Jamie's question, one, but it bound to, to multiple places, but just these alone are interesting and I'll share maybe one more with you. FOXG1 binds to the cell cycle inhibitors, these, at least these two, to um, repress their expression and by repressing your expression of these genes, it no longer inhibits the cell cycle. So one mechanism that's, that FOXG1 might allow neural progenitor cells to continue proliferating is not to drive proliferation, but to repress the expression of genes that might normally be activated to stop the cell from dividing. And again, these genes are strong enough by themselves. If I overexpress it in a cell, I can, I can stop it from dividing or at least severely inhibit it. So that to us was a nice insight into mechanism about what Fox, how FOXG1 might be affecting our you know, cellular phenotype I just described. The other very cool, uh, well, I guess there's two that really stood out to us that were highly significant. One was um, axonal pathfinding. That one caught me by surprise, but again, big peaks, big expression differences in MPCs, which is not something I necessarily would have expected, but it was very robust. So if you think of things like uh, the kids with FOXG1 syndrome, have, this is just one example, have a genesis of the corpus callosum. So this is these fibers that must cross from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain. One reason potentially that could be happening is that axonal pathfinding molecules, so when neurons grow, they don't just grow. They, they are, they're going to certain places in the brain and they only know where to go because they themselves express certain cues and they receive certain cues as they migrate the axons migrate through the environment. And you can, if you just think about your, your big toe, you got something going from your brain all the way down your spinal cord. It's synapsing at the very bottom, you know, first kit. So it, it's that long from your head to the bottom of your spinal cord. And then it has to go from the bottom of the spinal cord, another neuron now, all the way to your toe. So think about how long that is. How does that know where to go? Well, there's signaling cues to tell it where to stop, where to start. Gets blocked somewhere, gets you know repelled somewhere, gets attracted to different areas. So what I'm saying is FOXG1 seems to be important for turning some of these on or off, and that may have a role in you know corpus callosum uh, fiber. So we don't have the cellular assay to to uh, support that claim. It's just FOXG1 seems to be driving expression of these genes. And then the last one, uh, all the patterning people. People have been studying FOXG1 with respect to patterning, and brain patterning means uh, what should this cell become? It's often tissue specific. So uh, different areas of a developing embryo receive basically uh, diffusible morphogens or molecules that tell it to become a motor neuron or a sensory neuron for like very different. They could be right next to each other and they're being told to become different things. That's an example of patterning of a, of a system. So people have thought for some time based on knockouts and so on, that FOXG1 has a role in patterning and it's possibly independent from its role in proliferation. So 
I'm, and they even think they know the system that this is working in, like what, you know, there's different types of patterning multiples. So what we found was that these people seem to be correct. They just, at least in human, didn't get the exact right components of the system, or maybe it's different in their system. So what we found was that box G1 seems to bind to genes that are critical repressors of BMP signaling. So it doesn't really matter what that is right now. I will just say, suffice it to say that BMP signaling is important in brain development. It's one of many molecules that will tell, will pattern a tissue. And it turns out that where we see these big chip peaks in FOXG1 binding, correlated with you know the RNA-seq differences, are in genes that can turn this pathway off. And this is extremely, you know, I think the mouse people are going to be really happy with these data because number one, I wasn't, I just, I really don't like the, some of the hypothesis driven stuff because you never know, like you sort of fall in love with your hypothesis. You're like, oh, this guy's shown it. So I'm going to try it. It's like, no, no, this is like just math. What do we see? Okay. There's a big peak here. Oh, this is wonderful because it's really supporting what these people have been looking at for the last 20 years. Um, and we can really add some color and nuance to their study. So I, it's nice to be sort of fitting into the literature. It's, you know, you don't always want to be the odd man out and like, it's cool to discover new things, but at the same time, it's really nice to be able to support what other people are, are, are saying and to add a lot of insight into what they're saying. So that is the other area where we're really excited about what FOXG1 does. So for us, our, our next steps now, we'll, we'll, we'll put out this paper on sort of the, the maps of where this binds and, and what it does. I'll just say one last thing we're waiting for. We're going to overexpress FOXG1 and prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, when we induce FOXG1 expression, it is absolutely binding to and driving expression or repressing gene X. I'm just, we're just in the last stages of that. All the mapping stuff, the next gen sequencing stuff is done. Assuming that that all goes well, which maybe it won't, uh, our next steps are to start looking at the cell models of, you know, okay, we see a patterning defect or we see an axonal pathfinding defect or hyperactivity. Can we really model that in like an organoid type model? Can we see that when we overexpress FOXG1 that it's, this axon goes to the wrong spot? So the kind of things we're looking into are like fusionoids where we might, uh, we might take, we might manufacture a small organoid that will pump out BMP4, so the patterning molecule, we will fuse that, just to give you an example, we'll fuse that to like uh, patient cells. We'll also fuse it to controls. And then we'll just ask, is it able to repress the BMP4 signal based on output molecule X? And we'll compare cases. That's the kind of things that we're thinking about now and have not started yet. So I, I think with that, I will um, wrap up and open up the floor to uh, questions or comments or, or what have you. Can I just say thank you very much? That is fascinating, Doctor, and it's really exciting to kind of hear progress in the making. And 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 I'll now give the floor to everybody else because I've been taking up a lot of it. But thank you so much again. Yeah, no, thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Um, and I want to see if some of the people on stage have any questions. Doctor Shaw, you came in a while ago. Do you have anything to ask or share? Yes, thank you so much, Carl. I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. I was a little bit late, but my question is about the haplos insufficient FOX G1. And uh, we know that in some of the reports we have that they are exhibiting microcephaly and impaired neurogenesis phenotypes, uh, especially in the cortex. And I was just wondering, did you add any evidences to your paper? And do you have any more information that you can share with us? 
I, I, you cut out at some parts there. I didn't quite uh, get what you were saying, but that was just because maybe my computer cut out for a second. Sorry. Yeah, haplo um, insufficient Fox G1. This is my question. I was just wondering, uh, did you find any, I mean, uh, evidences, I mean, through your research, or do you have any more explanation that you can give to us? Because it's uh, kind of exhibiting microcephaly and impaired neurogenesis phenotype in the cortex, and there was some reports around. I was just wondering, if you have any more information that you can share with us, we would be happy to hear it. Right. Yeah. So the the haploinsufficiency. So that is the disease model we're working in. Um, anything we induce in a healthy cell line, it is to mimic haploinsufficiency. Um, so I would say it's the basis of everything we're uh, working on. Uh, the, all the patients as well are those patients you're describing. So they're microcephalic. So they have the, the classic phenotypes and they are haploinsufficient for FOXG1. I, even in, when we make the neurons from these kids, we can see that there's a, a, a loss of dosage. You know, protein dose is, is depleted, but still present in these kids. So, uh, you know, the, the, the model for uh, microcephaly that we would have, we can see very clearly that the, the, the neural progenitor cells are proliferating. They're just not proliferating enough. Um, and the, my explanation for small brain size is that there was not enough expansion of the progenitor cell pool when there was supposed to be based on the role of FOXG1 in, you know, it may be inhibiting um, repressors of the cell cycle, for example, and it did not expand enough. And the cells that are made are perfectly fine. It just, they have to be made. So they hop out of the cell cycle too early. Let's say that the, um, the, the, the regulation of expansion of the progenitor cell pool is a remarkably beautiful procedure or, you know, system in, in brain development, it, the way it stops, the way it starts, the timing of the cell cycle, the, the, the increasing length of the cell cycle, it's very meticulously timed. And when a, a gene like FOXG1 is haploinsufficient or you're missing, you know, one copy of it, you can imagine how, you know, problems can start to come up. So that's what we think of with respect to the microcephaly phenotype. It could be directly related to what we're seeing in the in the paper. And I, that's what we're working on now is how does FOXG1 drive proliferation? So we, we, we are thinking it's, it's able to repress cell cycle inhibitors, but I should say, you know, we pick up, there's other genes that are affected as well. So we're sort of trying to really look zero in on that area and they are not all um, inhibitors or repressors of cell cycle. So it might actually also be activating genes that are important in the cell cycle. It seems probably will end up happening is FOXG1, you need enough FOXG1 protein to bind to enough regions of the genome that are important for regulating the cell cycle um, to, to drive, you know, brain cell proliferation properly. And when FOXG1 is missing, you, there's so many different sites that it needs to go and bind to that you don't have enough FOXG1 to really turn the cell cycle the way you need to. And that's because it's controlling expression of so many genes, either repressing or expressing. So I, I see it as a multifunctional controller of cell cycle regulators only in brain. So that's important too, right? These genes will be under different regulation in the kidney and the liver and so on, but it is doing something to allow proliferation to occur. When, it's, when you don't have enough protein, you don't have enough binding to enough regions of the genome, but you'll still get some. It's, and it's and it's not all or nothing, you know. Missing FOXG1, you're still going to have. It's not like it does everything. It it is just a player in this process. That would be my 
my, my future model of FOXG1 um, haploids efficiency leading to microcephaly. Oh, that's an interesting point you, you said there. So is there in the disease, um, uh, is there like also problems that could be related to this um, FOXG1 um, in other organ development? Or is it really just in the neuron? Yeah, I mean, some people I've, I've, I've heard, I saw some of the initial reports of showing it in testes, but um, it's certainly considered uh, CNS, central nervous system. Um, when you look at the initial, you know, in situ hybridizations in mouse, like it's quite quite, <laughs> quite obvious that this is, this is really, so it's, it's sort of a, a kind of an amazing protein for that, uh, for that reason that it's, 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 you know, newly activated in whatever is going on in brain it's 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 it seems to be very important only in that in that area so it, it doesn't seem to be i should i should say in the cancers non-brain cancers i mentioned brain cancers before where you do pick up increased expression but people are now picking up fox g1 and for example breast cancer so this is obviously not a good thing. So turning on FOXG1 in other tissues through, you know, some oncogenic mutation is going to be terrible for any tissue that is turned on and because of what it can do to the cell cycle. So it is supposed to only be on in brain, but you can imagine, you know, some tumor could accidentally turn it on. Uh, not accidentally, some mutation occurs that allows it to, to be activated when it's not supposed to be activated. And then you get selection for the FOXG1 mutations and then the breast cancer gets worse because it's proliferating more. So it has been picked up in many tumors for that under that model. Again, just reinforcing its, you know, its power over the cell, uh, cell cycle. But beyond that, beyond cancers, um, this is really, really considered an exclusively brain expressed uh, gene. Thank you so much, uh, Carl, for that. Uh, so we have one um, speaker on stage, one uh, guest on stage. Nope. Do you have any questions for Carl, for Dr. Arn? Uh, not at the moment. I'm still processing everything that um, he has very eloquently put into my brain. And I appreciate you and thank you for all this information. Um, I will have a question maybe in a few minutes. Uh, Frank, do you have a question? Did you want to say something? Uh, I'm actually right now uh, browsing through the uh, pausing through the the paper and the very fascinating research. I'll, I'll uh, uh, similarly, I'll have a, a question uh, in a few uh, a moment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so I wanted to um, make um, a comment. We had, it's very interesting. Uh, we had yesterday, a guest speaker here that designed like a DCAS9 uh, fusion. Um, she designed like a inhibitor that can like really well regulate gene expression instead of uh, changing the genetic code and very precisely uh during uh, also during development uh so i thought um right now while you were uh, talking then on the follow-up studies uh that it would be really cool to try it out in your 
uh, model, it's not really a model, it's a real, real um, uh, case study, but um, it would be really interesting to try the technology out and see if it can modulate precisely um, the, the expression of, um, yeah, I, I can share the paper with you if you if you sure, would yes. be interested, <laughs> but I thought it would be interesting. Yeah, we're very, that, uh, the DCAS9s, we're very, um, very interested in it. That's probably the crab, uh, the crab modification. So we, we are working with them now, um, DCAS9 crab and DCAS9 VP64, that's the activator and the repressor. So the, they're obviously very appealing instead of hacking up the genome. Um, it would be a nice application to, you know, modeling Fox G1, especially inducible. So we're, we're very interested in that across all of our diseases. I can tell you whether rescuing with a, with a DCAS activator or, or trying to induce the problem with the, with the DCAS uh, repressor. So there's been, I don't know who that was, but I'm always very grateful for the people like doing the genetic engineering of making these vectors for the rest of us who can take their tools and apply them to like diseases such as Fox G1. So uh, yeah, she's Cheryl Levy. She received like she's a postdoc at the um, uh, University of Washington uh, in Hannibal Rula Baker's lab, and she received like a prize for this. Uh, so she computer designed this um, this uh, specific inhibitor that she can control really precisely. It's really impressive. Like she talked about it yesterday, and she uh, is also really nice. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'll just send you the paper, and then you can maybe yeah, you that... wanna listen to her presentation. I, I can also send you the presentation uh, she gave us yesterday. It's, sure, yeah, it yeah, was that... it was wonderful. That's great. Yeah, those that's that's the, some of these genetic tools are just amazing. So that's that's great. Yeah, yeah, I the the idea of this, you know, collaboration, interprofessional collaboration is really fun and I think <laughs> that's kinda how science grows, right? Like somebody says something and then somebody else comes and builds upon it and somebody else comes and, you know, adds another idea. So that's that's really fun to think about. Uh, but Dr. Ernst, I wanted to ask you, because uh, you know, we've had you for like an hour and a half, uh, how much time you have left uh with us? Uh five, ten minutes. Okay, that's good then. Uh, well, then I'll go back to Frank and Milk or anybody else on stage who had any questions or in the audience if you want to ask Dr. Ernst anything else uh, just because, you know, he has to leave soon. So please come up or ask in the chat or, you know, just to make sure that you get your question before he has to leave. So just putting that out there. Um, yeah, I wanted to. So are you also thinking about um using this knowledge because you know you mentioned cancer uh or you mentioned cancer a few times um can you or is somebody maybe somebody else uh using this insight basically also for cancer treatment yeah so i think we're so obviously, you know, uh, like things like glioblastoma are lethal. People die within two years of diagnosis and they're remarkably more common than we, we think. So there's huge interest in kind of anything that can maybe uh, do, you know, prevent this. I, I think the big issues are it is such a moving target 
uh, that the, the cancers evolve, the brain cancers evolve so quickly in front of physicians. You cut it out, you drug it, and it, it, it's just unbelievable how, how there's like stem cell types, there's neural types, there's look at it. So it's, people have a very difficult time trying to figure out what to target. And even now they're mapping, like, what are the genes that are really driving these differences and then how might we prevent them? So I think there's, we're sort of finalizing that aspect. And I think the same things do crop up again and again and again in brain tumors. Um, but using genetic tools to target it. So we are, we are looking at this, but um, the problems come up in the delivery, just like all, all kinds of gene therapy. Uh, how do you get it in safely? And what do you target? And certainly you don't want to be cutting up the genome in a brain tumor because even if it works in 99% of the cells you target, the minute you start doing double-strand breaks, this goes back to your DCAS9 example, um, you, you, can, you can make things worse. So lots of people are thinking about what, what ways we might be able to, to, tar to, to, to deal with this. The, the problem is obvious and the solution should be, well, I guess it's obvious, but actually doing it, the mechanics of it are remarkably um, difficult. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that, except that obviously it's a major problem and <laughs> lots of us want to do something about it. Uh, but, um, we'll see, we'll see how this plays out over the coming years. If, if, you know, we can solve some of these delivery problems and what type of gene editing one might do, for example, I, I don't mean double strand breaks. I mean, things like DCAS, you know, crab or, or what have you. That's why they just develop, I mean, more than 65 drugs or inhibitor for glioblastoma. So, of course, it can be very important finding. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's always the numbers. I look at like how the, you know, people take uh, you know, some, some drug and they have two months extra of life. It's, just, it's kind of striking how, how, uh, how lethal these things are. Yeah, it's interesting <clears throat> that you say that because I discussed this a bunch of weeks ago that it's interesting that, for example, it's very, very rare to get a heart cancer, right? Because the cells don't, um, at some point, they just don't renew themselves, right? So the risk of mutation is just so much lower and like there's very, very rare cases of heart disease. Right. Most of the neurons, at least in humans, don't um, regenerate either, but you have more occurrence of tumors in the, um, in the brain. So do you think that, you know, your research and looking into um, especially um, this um, could maybe answer more of these questions or do you know uh, why that is because or is there maybe more a cell regeneration than we than we know um, currently yeah that's a good question so I mean the founding cell in, in any type of brain tumor I'm not sure people necessarily know and even the founding cell itself something could sort of start populating the tumor and then it itself gets out competed by the next mutation so it's it's actually very difficult to put your finger on what initiates this uh tumor i think many people would would say it's you know glial cells which of course do divide 
Um, and you, there is evidence of you know tumors and even the oligodendrocytes, which also divide. So it may not be um, neuronal in nature, the, the the tumor, but it's in dividing cells. Whether you know there's the neurogenic niches, and I'm not sure how much evidence there are of tumors coming from you know dentate gyrus or subventricular zone. Although of course it, it could be, uh, but that's that's the great majority aren't aren't that. They're coming from from you know cortical areas and so on of, of some of these some of these tumors so yeah I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure what to say I think where we're looking at it is in creating naturalistic tumor models uh, brain tumor models and in a dish and trying to stop the tumors that we create using you know types of different gene therapy tools that are based on what we know now so we're basically think we have some expertise in proliferation. We have some expertise in, you know, in brain proliferation and some expertise in genetic engineering. Let's try and look at this very critical, that's basically the angle we're coming at it. And we know something about some of these regulators of, of the cell cycle. So we're, we're a neural developmental lab, but um, the problem is important enough and we have the skill set, I guess, more importantly, to actually poke around on it. You know, in a, you know, three or four years, we'll probably have something come out. But uh, it's going to take some time to get all this up and running. I just it was something we got into just because of the nature of our expertise. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you're open to it uh, because I think, yeah, I think it's and so many uh, labs and contacts. I think we we could branch out based on the tool sets we have and the knowledge we have and solve different kinds of problems, but not too many people are open to like go out into a different area they are not used to working. So yeah, that's wonderful. I'm curious to hear more about it. So always feel welcome to come back and share about those projects too. Thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So. Thank you I so much for coming. More questions for you, uh, we have just one more, uh, uh, Carl, if you don't mind. Uh, we have Shriyasta. Um, please ask your question really quickly because uh, um, Dr. Ernst has to leave in just a couple minutes. So if you have a question, please ask it really quickly. Uh, yes, Dr. Rans, thank you for the uh, beautiful um, project that you're doing, and it's really amazing. I myself have worked uh, with um, stress detection via face and its effect on emotions and brain. So I just wanted to know that, uh, like, when a person is going through, like, you know, when they are detected with cancer or uh, the thing it is growing, does there uh, are there other parameters like the hormonal levels that change in their body or the that you know that causes other kind of distress like emotional distress and mental distress? Um, I, so I'm not a uh, I'm not a clinical oncologist, so I don't I don't actually know that much about. Uh, kind of hormonal changes caused by tumors. I can imagine that there are certainly some. Uh, we're we're really focused on the basic science of the tumor and, and stopping. I think it's a great question, but I uh, <laughs> I'm really not uh, not qualified to answer that. Okay, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right. uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking the time and sharing so much about you know your um scientific life story like it's uh, and also all this um wonderful research and um i really love your approach how you um 
really uh, collaborate with your patients in such a way. It's really, I don't think, uh, very common. And uh, I wanted to also congratulate on that. And um, yeah, please always come back, honor us again with your presence. And um, thank you everyone for asking questions and being here and taking the time of your schedule. And um, yeah, with that, um, follow Science Society maybe. Uh, we will have more guest speakers coming. Um, and uh, yeah, Carl, thank you for this uh, wonderful room today. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank uh, Carl, thanks so, so much. And uh, yeah, sorry for uh, 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 came in late and for your excellent, you know, uh, research sharing. I mean, as uh, Katarina mentioned earlier, that the uh, earlier, uh, the previous uh, speaker, the Dr. Levy, we uh, I I asked to learn so much uh, about uh, the computational tool that uh, she used. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, she designed the the protein using the uh, Gazette Gazetta uh, 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 alternative to the uh, alpha fold. I think the the, the uh, I think it's the Rosetta fold, right? And also another computational tool she used this element for detecting uh, the transcription factors, cofactors. I was just as a maybe if I may as the last question. I mean for late joining uh, person, uh, what what kind of uh, computational tool that a uh, uh, that in uh, that in your your research might uh, uh, consider to uh, use or already been relied on, or I'm, I haven't you know been able to finish the reading of paper at all. Oh, that's fine. So we we to be honest, the, there's so much uh, expertise required to do to do um, large scale data processing. Um, I would love to do everything, but we, we just can't do everything well if we try and do everything. So I have some wonderful collaborators in Germany called, at the University of Aachen um, that basically handle all this. So we're just sort of long-term collaborators. So I, um, um, you know, I'm sure they have different tools and pipelines, but uh, we really partner up with very with people we trust to handle all those aspects of our projects that we sort of work on together as basic scientists with the computational scientists, mostly because I don't want to dabble in something that really takes a lot of uh, expertise to do carefully and properly. So I'm not aware of all the thousands of tools they have, but certainly they would have a lot or would use a new tool if they needed to, to apply it to whatever problem, um, whatever problem came up. But it's certainly, it's an important uh, question. Sure, thank you, Carl. Thanks so much, yeah. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. Um, as I said, we can go on and on for the whole day. So, but be respectful of your time and everyone else's. Um, yeah, thank you so much again, and have enjoy the snow in April, I guess. <laughs> and um, yeah, um, have a wonderful day, morning, evening, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank bye, you. Everybody. Bye. Bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.